Welcome to this week's episode of Down Home with Paul, reading a number of Paul Harvey stories in a Saturday News Brief too. Now, the rest of the story. Now, the rest of the story. The vessel should never have entered those waters at that time of year, never. But it was a hired ship, and the passengers had insisted, so there they were. Originally, there were to have been two ships, but the first had failed to pass safety inspection, and so all who were booked on the trip had to be crowded into one ship. There were a few days of fair weather. After that, none. Captain Jones had braced himself for the storms. He had sailed through his share. Less prepared were the passengers, most of whom became seasick after the first rolls and tosses. The crew... The crew was mildly sympathetic, with one exception. A vigorous, brash young man for whom the spreading of misery became a personal mission. It may have begun as a macho thing, a constant reminding that he was too much of a man for seasickness, but it grew into a sadistic game. The more ill the passengers became, the more cruelly the young seafarer behaved. The men passengers admonished him at least to watch his language around the women and children. Gleefully, he refused, was thereafter increasingly profane. And gradually the voyage evolved into a disaster. There was no heat aboard ship. The dampness and the cold penetrated every crevice. Neither was there artificial light below decks nor ventilation. And any attempt to attain either by opening a hatch was usually met with a rush of frigid seawater. And plumbing? Oh, no. No, there was no plumbing. And thus did the passengers almost suffocate in the stench of their own vomit and waste and for weeks on end. And yet the least tolerable aspect of that ill-advised voyage was the constant stream of vitriol from that one vindictive seaman, and each day the abuse grew worse. With astonishing vigor, the villain told the passengers that they were all going to die. They were all too weak to take it, he kept saying. It would be his pleasure, he said, to rob their corpses before he buried them at sea. Fish bait, he called them. Day and night, the taunting continued. Half dead and desperate, some of the passengers complained to Captain Jones, but Jones declared that he had his hands full, keeping the ship afloat. And so, the snarling, sneering, mocking laughter of that one belligerent crew member became louder than ever. And that is when those of the passengers with the strength left to pray began to pray. History has long since forgotten the name of that sadistic seafarer. But it does record that his prediction could not have been further from the truth. Every one of the tormented passengers, after 67 horrific days at sea, survived. Every one aboard lived through the incredible voyage. Every one but one. That one haunting, taunting crew member who had tried in vain utterly to demoralize the others. He, it was recalled, fell mysteriously ill in mid-journey and died in lingering agony. None of the crew ever again breathed an unkind word to the passengers. And thereafter it was whispered among the latter, among the American Pilgrim Fathers, that surely God himself was along for the ride on the Mayflower. And now you know 
the rest of the story. Welcome to History Repeated. Hi, I'm John Myers, and we'll get to today's video in just a moment. On History Repeated, we try to tell history in a way that makes you want to tell others about it. That way, history gets repeated. If you like this video, please click the like button and don't forget to subscribe to this channel so that when videos are uploaded that you have an interest in, you'll know about it. On today's episode, we're going to learn what became of the Mayflower. And as the story starts to unfold, you're going to be amazed at the answer. This was originally a Paul Harvey rest of the story story which was an audio broadcast and we've illustrated it to make it more watchable on the YouTube visual medium. So I hope you enjoy today's story on what became of the Mayflower. Now the rest of the story. Dr. Harris stood in the darkened doorway of the farmer's barn silent and staring. As his eyes adjusted, the shadows parted like curtains, revealing the shapes and the dimensions behind them. And there was something curious here, something anomalous to an English village in the outskirts of London. Whatever was out of place, Harris decided, had little to do with the age of the ancient structure. For if one had stood in that very doorway nearly three centuries previous, that is to say when the barn was new, one might still have felt uneasy as though the observer were suddenly far from the quaint Quaker settlement in Buckinghamshire, as though one were, well, nowhere near anything at all. And then Harris looked up, up to the beams supporting the barn roof. And as he kept looking, he realized that his head was tilting to one side, tilting more and more, as though his subconscious were struggling to envision the beams upside down. And all at once it struck him. The old barn amid the trees near the village of Jordan's was not exactly a barn at all, not exclusively at any rate. It was instead a ship, an old sailing ship, whose materials had been reconfigured and reassembled to make a barn. Well, there was no question at all, for clearly the roof beams were in the shape of a ship's keel. And on one of those beams, well, now, wait a minute, that's the rest of the story. The discovery by Dr. Harris, at least superficially, is not at all surprising because the best wood for construction was reserved in those days for the Royal Navy. English farmers, wishing to build their barns out of sturdy stuff, would often buy sailing vessels about to be scrapped. And that's precisely what a Buckinghamshire farmer named William Russell did to procure wood for his barn in Jordans. He was obviously correct regarding the quality of the lumber, for there the barn had stood for almost 300 years before Dr. Harris first laid eyes on it. Now, Randall Harris was a scholar, and so for markings on the barn timbers, he sought to identify the original vessel from which the timbers had been scavenged. On a beam taken from the ship's stern, Harris found the letters H-A-R, Harwich, he said to himself, the name of the ship's home port. He reopened the port books, seeking a ship's name that would coincide with other letters emblazoned on the same timber, and what do you know, there it was. A cargo ship that had carried freight between England and France for many years before being declared in ruins and appraised and sold. And yet it was a side trip. A side trip taken three years before she was scrapped that makes the vessel worth remembering. You may doubt if you wish and others have the research of Dr. Rendell Harris completed in the second decade of this century. But before you dismiss it, consider this one last piece of evidence. A fractured crossbeam... A split crossbeam, still in the roof of that old barn. Today, still there. Just like the one described in the ship's own log. 
a beam that split during a storm at sea in 1620, a telltale timber from a watertight time machine linking England's past with your future. The barn was built from the lumber of the Mayflower. And now you know the rest of the story. Now, the rest of the story. In the medieval Dutch town of Leiden in the early 17th century, the immigrants were getting restless. There was a significant immigrant population, even back there, even back then. You see, the people of Leiden had a motto in those days, a slogan not unlike our own. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe the free, and so on. Their saying was, quote, Leiden refuses no honest people free entry, period. It was not quite as catchy as the generous entreaty inscribed on the pedestal of Lady Liberty, but it was effective, so effective that within months of its first utterance, 30% of the town of Leiden was foreign-born and foreign-speaking. But eventually, as I say, those immigrants grew restless. And the issue was tolerance, for the immigrants had come to Leiden in the first place, fleeing intolerance elsewhere in the world. In other words... These were the unwanted, the unappreciated, even the persecuted from other shores, seeking a society which would welcome them as they were, instead of insisting on conformity to local custom. But after only a little more than a decade in warm, welcoming, tolerant Leiden, the tolerated immigrants lost their own tolerance for their new home. Our children are becoming too assimilated, too Dutch, the ungrateful immigrants began complaining. Or, we aren't getting enough jobs, they complained. And predictably, when the Dutch natives of Leiden began hearing that sort of thing, they began rethinking their original policy of open doors and open arms. No, the Dutch refused to deport their malcontents, but their individual unofficial attitudes became less hospitable. And you can see where this is going. Many of the immigrants who only a half generation before had flocked to Leiden so gladly and so gratefully packed up and moved out to the New World. So, after the so-called pilgrims wore out their welcome in Leiden, Holland in 1620... A handful of them got into a shaky little boat, sailed across the sea to Plymouth Rock. But there was a stowaway aboard the Mayflower, and that unseen passenger was the culture of Leiden itself. For despite their relentless struggle for originality, the pilgrims brought with them to their new home in North America a collage of customs which Americans recognize and revere to this day. The civil registration of marriages, for example, which initiated the then unique concept of separation of church and state. Almost two centuries later, John Quincy Adams would cite the Mayflower Compact as the foundation for the United States Constitution. But did he know that the United Colonies, which the Pilgrims established in New England in 1643, the consolidation of semi-independent jurisdictions into one nation, that was based on a form of federal government that they had first observed in the Netherlands, the United Provinces. And one thing more, back in Leiden there was a particular celebration. It was a day commemorating the end of the Spanish siege against the city in 1574. It was sort of like our Fourth of July. But the focus of those Dutch festivities, instead of fireworks, was gratitude. Thanksgiving Day, it was called. 
Yes, I do mean to say that when you're giving thanks today, save some for the people of 17th century Leiden, whose own immigrants emigrated to our distant rocky shore, where eventually, however arduously, freedom was born. Now you know the rest of the rest of the story. No, I will not, declared President Thomas Jefferson. I will not encourage the American people to pray. What he said more precisely was that civil powers alone had been given to the President of the United States, no authority to direct the religious exercises of his constituents. Well, churchgoers were incensed. They reminded Jefferson that President Washington had proclaimed a national day of prayer. So had President John Adams. But the third president of the United States responded firmly that the Constitution was clear on the matter. If folks wanted to pray, they'd have to do it on their own time and without his urging. And so it was through the two terms of Tom Jefferson. And although Madison, his successor, saw no problem with the president recommending public worship, he agreed that such a presidential proclamation would pose a constitutional disaster. Now, until Jefferson, U.S. presidents were practically telling people to pray. But this is the rest of the story. There was a magazine editor named Sarah Josepha Hale, and Sarah Hale vigorously disagreed with Jefferson's perspective on prayer in the presidency. Americans were drifting further from God, she said. Before they drifted too far, the president must step in and urge a renewal of that relationship. In fact, said Sarah Hale, he must proclaim a day of prayer. Sarah used her popular Boston Ladies magazine to promote the idea. She began her crusade in 1827. Write your congressman, she told her readers. Pressure the president. And yet, enamored of Tom Jefferson's perspective on the issue, the chief executives who came after him remained determined to separate church and state. But Sarah Hale refused to give up. When her magazine merged with Godey's Ladies Book of Philadelphia, Sarah found herself with 150,000 breeders and the largest periodical of its kind in the nation. And from this enlarged public pulpit, she continued to preach her sermon of government-enforced prayer. For nearly 40 years, Sarah Hale crusaded, writing hundreds of letters to public officials, publishing scorching criticism of those who would stand in her way. And one day... One day her mission was accomplished. The nation was at war with itself by then, but in 1863, President Lincoln, in good spirits over a major Union victory at Gettysburg, was reading another of those insistent Sarah Hale letters which had been addressed to him personally, and this time the president gave in, and Mr. Lincoln proclaimed a national day of prayer. And you have been observing it ever since. All of your life, you've thought of it as a tradition unbroken from the time of the earliest English settlers. Not so. No, no. It took a feisty New England publisher named Sarah Hale four decades to ensure that tomorrow, I mean tomorrow, by presidential edict, you will bow your head in expression of gratitude to God in the annual American ritual that you have come to know as Thanksgiving. Only, only now you know the rest of the story. The rest of the story. 
Our country's early history seems a vast expanse of inexact boundaries and sought-after, fought-over territories. It's very difficult to imagine that as we chase the horizon, there was one territory in our path that we didn't want at all. Oh, it's true. In fact, for a while we were trying to palm off this territory on another country, but the other country didn't want it. Neither did we, so for the longest time this poor little territory was stranded, rejected, homeless. Oh, technically it belonged to us. We just didn't want to occupy it. And those few intrepid souls who did inhabit the region longing to belong somewhere sent representatives in every direction. What was so bad about the place? Well, the early settlers who were wilderness shopping for land to settle called it a pest hole. A popular saying of that era warned others to avoid the territory, quote, the land of ills. The word means fever, ague, and chills. When at last the territory's governor persuaded the United States government to survey the region, the surveyors arrived, but they turned right around and returned home to describe the place as an endless swamp, unworthy of their efforts. The weather was awful, the land was poor, and interspersed with sandy areas that grew nothing. To this, the United States Land Office superintendent listened with great interest, as did many others, including the President and the Congress. Heads were put together. What did the military have to say about this disagreeable region? Quote, not worth defending. About that time, other reports were being compiled. The Morse Traveler's Guide highlighted the expanses of sand, occasionally blotted by stubby trees and scanty vegetation. Not even a nice place to visit. But the territorial inhabitants, those few brave settlers who called this forsaken place home, they hung in there and their hopes sustained for future acceptance into the Union. But then the going got rough. Malaria... The solitary, unfortunate United States Army outpost stationed there was forced to evacuate. Returning soldiers assured the folks back home that only Indians, muskrats, and bullfrogs could live where they had been. Today you wouldn't recognize this territory, the land that once upon a time nobody wanted. From the 150-year-old travel guides, you wouldn't recognize it. In fact, if the original settlers of the region had not been so stubborn and so persistent, that territory might still be just territory. For you see, if this land were to be accepted into the Union, those first inhabitants first would have to lure more settlers in. And with their previous public relations, this was no easy task. But they did hang in there, those few. And when they had eventually attracted a population large enough to apply for statehood, Congress turned them down said they had to surrender a fertile strip of territory to another state in exchange for 14,000 square miles of barren wilderness. But you know what? They accepted the terms of the Congress, and today the territory nobody wants ranks number seven in population among all of the United States, ranks number six in manufacturing. Today, this region is one of our most economically prosperous and geographically beautiful of all states. And until 1837, practically nobody wanted Michigan. The state of Michigan? The state of Michigan. And now you know the rest of the story. Good evening, Americans. 
We are just never ready for this kind of thing in this country. We deplore the hotheads elsewhere in the world who change governments with guns, but we try to ignore the fact that now four of our own presidents have been cut down by assassins. It had been such a tremendous welcome at the Dallas airport and all along the parade route that Mrs. Kennedy, who had become perhaps his greatest political asset, turned to her husband and said, You can't say Dallas wasn't friendly to you. Moments later, in the back seat of that open car, she cradled her husband's bleeding head in her arms, saying, Oh, no, oh, no. Top speed, it was still five minutes to Parkland Hospital. Mrs. Kennedy did not collapse, no hysteria. When she entered the hospital, her chic fuchsia suit was covered with her husband's blood. President Kennedy, within 30 minutes, was dead from a bullet in his brain. There was another wound in the president's neck, which could have been from the same bullet. Mrs. Kennedy's wish was to return to Washington immediately to be with the children. The bullets, by now you know, came from a warehouse window. On the fifth floor, police found the remains of some fried chicken and some paper. The assassin had waited there for some time. And a Mauser rifle with a scope sight. Three cartridges fired, one still in the chamber. Dallas policemen advised that a suspect had entered a theater in the Riverside section, chased him there. There was a shootout. One policeman was killed. The suspect was captured, Lee H. Oswald, at 24. They dragged him from the theater, screaming. Evidence is piling up against him. He was employed in the building where the murder weapon was found. Lee H. Oswald traveled in Russia in 1959, married a Russian woman, renounced his American citizenship, tried to apply for Russian citizenship. That's significant, significant killed by extreme right-wing elements. Now it develops the assassin's allegiance was red. He wore a brown shirt, uniform of a Castro-Communist terrorist, and he, Lee Oswald, is chairman of the pro-Castro outfit called the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Governor Connolly, with a bullet through his back that came out his chest, fractured his wrist, underwent surgery. He is conscious, condition good. Vice President Johnson, who was riding in a separate car a considerable distance behind Kennedy's, was unhurt. Lyndon Johnson is now president of the United States. Within less than two hours of the president's death aboard the presidential plane in Dallas, Johnson took the oath of office sworn in by a woman judge and then took off with the widow and the body for Washington. When the first news came today, before it was even confirmed that the president had been killed, a flood of cell orders hit the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. They rang the bell, closed down for the day, but before they could, industrials had plummeted $21. And the commodity exchanges closed down and Congress recessed and sporting events most everywhere scheduled for tonight are canceled. Pope Paul, advised, went to his private chapel to pray. General Douglas MacArthur, in a telegram to Mrs. Kennedy tonight, said, quote, I realize the utter futility of words at such a time, but as a former comrade in arms, his death kills something within me. President's special car has a bulletproof bubble glass top, but the top was down today so that he could wave to the enthusiastic crowds. The Dallas reception was the most enthusiastic of any stop in Texas. For weeks, a big debate raged over who of the city's luminaries would get to sit at the head table this noon. Nobody did. And on the President's White House desk tonight are the calls and the callers and the documents and the urgent things to be done which could not possibly await his attention for another day. But they will wait now. It is for us that one must grieve tonight. For a generation which has so refined its intellect that it can split atoms and communicate with the moon, and yet remains at the mercy of its own undisciplined emotions, 
If the world is one day destroyed, it'll come just like this, you know. It'll not be the H-bomb that did it. It'll be the greed or the fear or the hate that set it off. Paul Harvey. Good night. ABC Chicago. Down Home with Paul is a production of New Source, One Michener. Stories and more are found at the Paul Harvey Story Archives page on YouTube. Until next week, good day.